Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Yes, there are all those elements and, of course, many more. And much more coming up on the show today. But as usual, let's get started with a couple of questions. The first one is about a hormone that can go by one of two names. One name stems from the gland where it is produced and the other from the location of that gland in the body. I want both of those names. And the second question, why in 1963 did Ray Kroc, McDonald's owner, introduce the hula burger, a slice of grilled pineapple with cheese on a bun? If you know the answer to either one of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text your answers to 514-800. Just a little bit later, I have a guest today, Dr. Chris Labos is here, and we're gonna talk about his new book, Does Coffee Cause Cancer? I'm sure you wanna know the answer to that one. So that's coming up uh, after our break at 3.15 for traffic. Uh, I got to tell you a couple of interesting things I've come across. Uh, I was uh, last week in Las Vegas at a conference uh, for skeptics. It's a conference that I've gone to many times uh, before. It was originally started by James Randi. At that time, it was known as The Amazing Meeting but now it has been taken over by the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. And it's really a very, very uh, interesting conference, of course, right up my alley, because it is all about uh, separating myths from facts. And um, a couple of very interesting things uh, at that conference. First of all, uh, we had an hour and a half uh, sort of uh, private chat with all the, the um, uh, conference goers with uh, Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn and Teller, of course, are magicians, although that doesn't really explain what they do. They do a lot more than that. They debunk a lot of nonsense. Uh, they um, are both uh, uh, extremely, extremely clever people. Uh, Penn has written a number of books. Uh, he's a juggler as well. He plays the guitar and they're just fascinating people. So we talked about uh, the history of, um, of their being in show business. I mean, they've been together now for over 50 years. Um, and of course they are um, sort of permanently ensconced in the Rio, the hotel in Las Vegas, where they present their uh, evening show, which I have uh, seen uh, many times. Uh, also, when I was uh, there in, in Vegas, I had the uh, chance to go and see the sphere. Now, if you haven't uh, heard about this or, or seen videos of it, you can go on YouTube and see what this is all about. <clears throat> it's a little bit difficult to explain. It looks just like our biosphere here on, uh, you know, Il Notre Dame that used to be the American pavilion during uh, Expo 67, except that it is much larger than that because it seats get this, 18,000 people, 18,000 people. The outside of the sphere is totally covered with uh, light emitting diode. So it basically functions as a screen. 
and it changes its image every few seconds. One minute, it looks like an eyeball. The next, it looks like a giant pumpkin, or it just has vibrating colors. It's really an amazing thing to see, very difficult to describe. Inside, uh, you watch what uh, I, I, I guess can be best described as a super IMAX uh, film. There's no screen as such. Uh, the whole inside is, is, is black, but it's all made up of millions and millions and millions of LEDs, which together constitute the picture. The quality of the picture is just unbelievable. It's, what can I tell you? It's, it's better than life. It's, it's better than reality. And the, the film is <coughs> interesting. It's sort of a travelogue <clears throat> going around the world. You see different countries, all kinds of interesting images of mountains, volcanoes, etc. And you feel like you're there. And uh, there are uh, sort of sensors built into the chairs. And uh, for example, when a, an elephant rumbles across the, uh, I can, it's not even a screen, but you know, across the dome, uh, you feel it every time it puts down its foot, you know, your seat kind of, of rumbles. It's really an amazing, um, uh, it's spectacular. That's, that's I, I guess that's the word uh, that uh, is best used. So uh, I had um, a great time uh, seeing that. And uh, I think that this is sort of a, a, a prototype and they are thinking of building this in other major cities. But um, we're talking about $2 billion is what that costs. That's a lot of money uh, being spent on something like that. Uh, but uh, I imagine eventually they will make it up because uh, it holds 18,000 people at a time. And they put on, uh, uh, I think, four shows every, every day. So that's uh, pretty, uh, pretty interesting, right? Uh, I also had the chance to see Matt Franco. Some of you may remember him, Matt. Uh, he was a winner, I think it was in 2014, of uh, America's Got Talent. And I think he was the first magician to, to win that. Uh, Shin Lim won it, uh, I think, after that. Anyway, uh, I went to see him because I, I do like to go see uh, magic shows. And uh, boy, was it ever a, a, a good one. And I can tell you that I've been to uh, a large number of magic shows in my life, uh, you know, all, all over. And uh, it is rare that I, you know, I see something that totally befuddles me. I mean, usually I have some idea of how things are done because there's nothing ever really that novel in, in magic. It's sort of like dressing up you know, old tricks and old illusions in new clothes. And it's all a question of performance and, you know, how you put it all together. But uh, uh, Franco uh, had two, uh, uh, I don't know what, what even to call them, I guess, tricks that, that I had no idea how he did. So it was spectacularly entertaining. <clears throat> and uh, I also had a chance, uh, or at least I took the chance, to go and see Wayne Newton, who of course is Mr. Las Vegas. And uh, <laughs> what can I tell you? <clears throat> it was uh, fascinating <clears throat> and surprisingly good. I didn't uh, expect much. <clears throat> I really went to see it because he is really a legend. 
but uh, it was really very entertaining. He was charming, answered questions from the audience, brought his wife up on stage and chatted uh, with her, showed videos of his early days when he opened for Jack Benny, talked about his friendship with Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra. Uh, so it was really uh, uh, very good. If you get a chance to go to Vegas, uh, I would uh, say yes. Uh, go see Wayne Newton. All right. <clears throat> Kenny, always, always the first to call in. Let's see if this time he has the answer. Kenny. What? <clears throat> Kenny? I, I guess Kenny's not there. Okay, <clears throat> we'll uh, go on and hope someone uh, someone else does have an answer to that uh, uh, question. Uh, although I don't, uh, I don't see anyone else uh, lining up. Anyway, uh, as I told you, uh, after the break today, which we're going to take for um, for traffic. My guest is Dr. Chris Labos, and many of you, of course, will know him because you've heard him both here on CJD, you've seen him on, on, on CTV, and he's got a new book out. And it's a fascinating book, and it's right up my alley because it is separating fact uh, from fiction and uh, separating sense from nonsense, which, of course, uh, we like to do here uh, all the time. So. We're going to take a, a break now, see what is going on out there in the world of traffic. And after that, we'll be back with uh, Dr. Chris Labos. I'm still obviously still looking for the answer to my, uh, my questions. So let me repeat these. Uh, we're looking for a hormone that has two names. The same hormone has two names. One stems from the gland where it is produced and the other from the location of the gland in the body. I want you to name both of these, the, the two names. And the second one is uh, 1963. Ray Kroc, uh, McDonald's owner, introduced the hula burger, slice of grilled pineapple with cheese on a bun. Why did he do this? And uh, if you get the answer to that, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. All right, let me uh, talk a little bit about the, the question that I asked this morning on the trivia show. I asked for the name of a chemical that links uh, red wine, uh, anti-aging face creams, and uh, British banks' refusal to grant mortgages. And uh, you know, I'm trying to come up, of course, I'm trying to come up with uh, uh, you know uh, questions that are so difficult to to Google. Anyway, the answer to that was resveratrol, resveratrol, which is the active ingredient in red wine. It's also found in face creams and is extracted from something called the Japanese knotweed. And if you have that growing on your on your property in in England, you won't get a Mortgage because this thing can grow into the foundation and destroy the foundation. All right, I think we have found Chris. Hi, Chris. Hello, hello. 
Hey. So uh, we uh, got it all straightened out on the line now. I have Dr. Chris Labos, a colleague, uh, and uh, uh, he's a cardiologist here in Montreal, and we share a, a common passion for separating sense from nonsense. And Chris has come up with a book that does exactly that. And uh, the, the book has uh, an intriguing title because it's called Does uh, Coffee... Uh, cause problems? Does coffee cause uh, disease? And uh, there's about nine different myths that are uh, addressed in in this book. And uh, we're going to chat with Chris uh, about this and uh, the book, Does Coffee Cause Cancer? So Chris, uh, uh, first of all, let me tell you, I really enjoyed uh, reading that book. And uh, you've uh, introduced a different kind of style because it's written in sort of a, a, a semi-fictional way, although, of course, the science in it is, is very hard. But uh, you did it by telling a story. So how did you come up with the idea of, of the format for the book? Well, it was sort of an iterative process, because when I was first thinking about the book, I wanted to write something about science, you know, about sort of debunking myths, about, you know, explaining stuff to people, um, that became very important over the course of COVID about study design and how to, you know, identify if something is a good study or a bad study. Um, so I wrote out a, a sample chapter and I was shopping it around to the different uh, publishers. And as I was speaking to them, they said, okay, it's an interesting idea, but is there something that we can do to make it more accessible for the general public? And as we were bouncing ideas around, somebody mentioned the book, um, The Wealthy Barber, which some people may you know, have heard about. This was a book that was about um, personal finance and the premise of the book was people were going into this barber shop and this barber were, was giving them financial advice and so that type of question answer type format can be very useful when you're trying to explain complex topics like this because the characters can ask the questions that the reader might have because the reader might be reading the book and think well what about this and now you can have the character voice their concerns and so, you know, when we started fleshing out the idea, it became very interesting because I thought there's a lot of potential for this. So I rewrote the initial chapter that I was using as a prototype, which was the one about, about coffee, and I sort of set it in a coffee shop with a doctor talking to a barista. And so uh, I wrote that and showed it to a friend of mine, and the first bit of feedback that I got from my friend was pretty good. But I kept expecting him to ask her out at the end. And the minute she said that, I realized, oh, this can actually be a love story. And so the narrative element of it became much more developed and got infused throughout the book. So you can read the book for the science, and the science is all there, and a lot of the studies are referenced at the end. But you can also enjoy the narrative and just sort of get to the science along the way as you go on this narrative journey. All right. Well, let's let's start with the uh, the title of the book, which is also one of the chapters. Does coffee cause cancer? Yeah. Does it? Well, I mean, you have to read the book to find out, but the, the, uh, the short answer is no. And I mean, uh, you know, when you look at these myths, you may know what a lot of the answers are. But what I think is is interesting when you get into it is to understand why these myths became popular why did this court in california say that coffee needed warning labels on it which they never ultimately did and you get sort of the resolution of that 
as the story progressed over the years. But it's sort of understanding, like, like why did this happen? Because people have heard these headlines, right? Maybe they didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Maybe they didn't give it much mind. But they saw it on the news or they saw it on Facebook or on Twitter or they heard about it from somebody. And so understanding why these ideas became as popular as they did becomes an interesting exercise because it then allows you to sort of apply the same techniques, the same critical analysis when you hear similar stories about, you know, tomatoes causing cancer or potatoes causing cancer. So the answer is no, coffee doesn't. But seeing why people made these mistakes, I think the interesting part, and one of the advantages of having this type of more creative formats to the book is it allows you to go on these little digressions. And so when I'm when the main character is explaining this to the barista, we go on to these interesting tangents about, you know, what does this have to do with online dating? What does this have to do with this conception? I mean, a lot of people have said the notion is like, oh, all the good guys are married. That's why you can't find somebody. Well, there's a reason for that, and that's called selection bias. And so with each chapter, not only do you get a lesson about food, but you get a little mini lesson on statistics, and you will learn a new term as to what are the issues that tend to lead people down these, these blind paths. Okay, Chris, hold on to that thought, because we've got to take a break here for uh, for the news, but I want to discuss a couple of your other chapters there, which are... Uh, both entertaining and uh, informative. So we're chatting with Dr. Chris Labels and his uh, new book, Does Coffee Cause Cancer? And uh, it's entertaining and you will learn a great deal. But right now we're going to learn what's going on in the world. We'll check news and be right back. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We're chatting with Dr. Chris Labos, a Montreal cardiologist who has just uh, written a new book. It's called Does Coffee Cause Cancer? And it's uh, a compilation of uh, several myths that he discusses in a very entertaining way. And one of the chapters is Red Wine's Good for Your Heart, a myth. Well, Chris, that is right up your alley as a cardiologist. So yes. what is that chapter all about? Yeah, so it really, really is. And now, and you know, the, the idea that red wine is good for your heart really persists, um, undaunted by the, the passage of time. Um, what's also really fascinating is that when I, when I was writing the book and doing the research on a lot of these myths, it was really fun to go back to see what the inception point was. And, and sometimes there is no clear starting point. These are things that grow over time. But with red wine, we actually do have a fairly clear starting point. You can actually trace it back to 1991 because that's when Morley Safer did his now famous segment on 60 Minutes about the French paradox and really introduced the idea of the French paradox to the North American population as a result. I saw they, I saw it yeah. live. I remember yeah. seeing it live. <laughs> what, what, what's funny is that when you go back and watch it today, though, a lot of the things they say in it are, are you know, a little bit silly now because, well, frankly, we know better. But if you go back and watch the original segment, yes, they mentioned red wine. Of course, Morley Safer had his favorite, you know, final quote that things right at the end. He's like, maybe the answer lies in this inviting glass of red wine before me. It's a very sort of theatrical presentation. But a lot of the segment is actually spent blaming the high rate of heart disease in North America on milk, with the fundamental conclusion being that maybe we should stop giving our children milk. 
um, which of course now we know is, is not true. But there were a lot of theories circulating in the 1980s to try to explain the growing rate of heart disease that we've had that we've been seeing in the second part of the 20th century. Uh, you know, now we know better, and you know, we are, there are there are mathematical explanations for the red wine paradox. Part of it is how the French actually code their death certificates, which is different in the U.S. Part of it is the lag that was seen in the evolution of the French diet after World War II relative to the to the U.S. So there's a lot of uh, ways to explain away the French paradox, and, and a lot of the more recent research has actually shown that red wine is, is actually not good for your heart and bad for your heart in a lot of different ways. Not only can high doses actually cause heart failure, but it also increases your blood pressure, and, and alcohol is a sugar. So you'll drink enough of it, you will gain weight. As Tommy Schnurmacher said to me once many, many years ago, th there's a reason we call it beer belly, not celery belly, and actually worked that finally to the book, I think. Yes, and of course, uh, ethanol is a known carcinogen. Exactly. So. I mean, if you think about it, if I told you that a food made you gain weight, cause cancer, increase your risk of heart disease, uh, there, there, and cause birth defects, you know, there's no way you would eat it, but yet we are able to tolerate that in wine because, frankly, people like drinking alcohol. And again, you can drink alcohol, you know, in the same way that you can eat ice cream, eat potato chips. You just shouldn't do it with the mistaken impression that it's good for your heart because it probably isn't. All right, let's do one more here. Uh, hot dogs are as bad as cigarettes. Yeah, so I remember this headline, actually, and I remember when this first came out. This was as a result of IARC, uh, the International Agency for Research Heart Cancer. They are a group that uh, researches different products and then classifies them as to their carcinogenity, uh, except what they classify them as, they classify them in terms of harm rather than risk, which is a very, very subtle point. Uh, and what's fascinating is that the way they use the word harm is not the way the word harm is used statistically in medical research. So it's a doubly sort of bizarre choice for them to make because they're not talking, and you've, I've heard you talk about this for so many times, right? It's a bit of an absurd way to go about it because they're not telling you how likely it is that you're going to cause cancer. They're judging on whether there is any type of link. They're judging sort of the strength of the evidence, even if the risk is extremely, extremely small. So when it comes to red meat, you know, yes, there is data that red meat is not good for you, especially if it's processed red meat. So if it's like transformed in some way, so if it's like smoked or turned into hot dogs or something like that, rather than just being plainly cooked the way you could with a steak. So processed red meat is probably not, not great for you. Uh, but when you sort of analyze all the research, you look at the risk of, you know, developing colon cancer it does move your lifetime risk up by about 1%, which is not trivial, but it's not excessively high either. And, you know, because this book is a dialogue, what I liked about this chapter is now you could have several characters debating these points and saying, well, 1% to me is a lot. And you can have another character say, well, for me, 1% is not that much, but, you know, maybe I'll cut back on my red meat a little bit. So, you can look at the issue from multiple different ways once you agree on a set of facts. And I think that's what's really interesting because a 1% increased risk of colon cancer is going to seem like a lot to some people and maybe not so much to others. And you can make this very complex decision about you know, whether you want to eat less meat while also keeping in mind all the environmental and ethical issues that comes with you know, raising animals.
Okay, let me ask you one last question here that, you know, I like to ask uh, all my guests who know what they're talking about and who've, you know, written books and, and you know, or, or done programs of all kinds. What change did you make in your life, if any, since you put all of this together? Well, probably not any major change because a lot of these things were things that I've known about that I'd written about either for the Gazette or in other, uh, you know, situations. This was really sort of a compilation. But I think if there's a take-home message that should come from this is that a lot of the things you hear don't really matter because we know how to eat healthy. What I was really trying to debunk as a central concept is the idea of orthorexia, the idea that there's a correct way to eat. There is no correct way to eat. There's just healthy eating. And we know what healthy eating is. It's less junk food, probably a little bit less meat, a little bit less alcohol, eating smaller portions, stuff that is already obvious to people. And I think that's the point is that once you understand the pitfalls that go into food research and why a lot of the headlines end up being wrong, that can actually liberate you to stop worrying about all these things and to just eat healthy, which is a lot easier than most people realize. Right. The book is called Does Coffee Cause Cancer? It's by Dr. Chris Labos. It's uh, available everywhere. And you should run and get it because you will be entertained and you will learn a lot of science and you won't even realize that you're learning because you'll be having so much fun reading it. So thanks, Chris, for um, uh, talking about it and uh, all the best. And I can tell you that I really enjoyed reading this book and I'm sure everyone else will enjoy it too. Oh, thank you. That is coming from you. That is very, very kind and a very strong endorsement. So I do thank you profoundly for that. Okay. See you, Chris. Take care. All right. That was uh, Dr. Chris Labos talking about his new book, uh, Does Coffee Cause Cancer? And uh, time for us to take a break. And after that, we'll be back with some answers to the questions that I posed. And uh, I also want to talk a little bit about soy and estrogens. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. So uh, maybe I better give you the answer to those, uh, uh, the questions that, uh, that I posed. The, uh, the one about uh, uh, the hormone. The question was uh, a hormone that has two names, and one name stems from the gland where it's produced and the other from the location of that gland in the body. Well, of course, it's adrenaline, adrenaline, which is produced by the adrenal gland, and its other name is epinephrine. And uh, epi means above, and phrin is the Greek for kidneys, and it is located, the adrenaline, uh, adrenaline glands are located above the kidneys. The other question about Ray Kroc having introduced in 1963 the hula burger, which is a slice of grilled pineapple on a on a bun with cheese. And that was for Catholics who would not eat meat on Fridays. Of course, that no longer holds. The um, The papacy has said that Catholics uh, can eat meat on Fridays. Over the years, I can tell you that I had a large number of questions about soy, various aspects of soy. Should you eat it? Should you not eat it? Uh, um, what happens if you have breast cancer? Do you have to stay away from it? So I thought maybe I would address that. <clears throat> well, you know that breast cancer has been recognized as a scourge. Uh, why? Uh, 
because breast tumors uh, since ancient times were known to be visible and uh, they came to be associated with premature death. As early as 1500 BC, the famous Egyptian medical text known as the Ebers Papyrus described breast cancer as an incurable disease. Hippocrates, uh, who postulated that health depends on the balance of blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile, the so-called four humors, noted that tumors sometimes turn black, and therefore he speculated that the cause was an excess of black bile. Over the years, many other theories were advanced, including Bernardo Ramazzini's thesis in the 18th century that nuns had a high incidence of breast cancer due to a lack of sexual activity. German physician Friedrich Hoffmann had a different view and suggested that the disease was caused by too vigorous activity. The 18th century also brought the first effective treatment, and that was surgical removal of a tumor. And then when anesthetics were introduced, radical mastectomy, along with the removal of lymph nodes, became the standard treatment. A connection between breast cancer and hormones was unknowingly made by Scottish surgeon George Beetson in 1895, after he had removed the ovaries from a patient who had an ovarian cyst, common procedure at the time. The patient also had breast cancer, and Beetson noted a shrinkage of her tumor. A clue about this effect did not emerge until 1906, when ovarian extracts were shown to stimulate the sexual reproductive cycle, or the estrus cycle, uh, as it is called. And the active ingredient was finally isolated in 1929 and called estrogen. And that name derives from the Greek oistros for mad desire and genin to produce. Estrogen was said to produce a mad desire for sexual activity. An explanation for why removal of the ovaries shrank breast tumors now, of course, became apparent. Estrogen seemed to feed the tumor. The mechanism by which this happens was discovered by organic chemist Elwood Jensen in 1958. He found that estradiol, and that's the estrogen that is produced by the body, binds to proteins in cells that he called estrogen receptors. The receptor then transports the estrogen into the cell's nucleus, where it interacts with DNA and causes changes in the expression of specific genes. The result? Irregular cell multiplication. And that, of course, is the hallmark of cancer. Well, the discovery of estrogen receptors also suggested the treatment for breast cancer. Perhaps the irregular cell multiplication could be prevented if these receptors were to latch onto some substance that would then preclude them from binding to estradiol. And that worked. Drugs such as tamoxifen bind to estrogen receptors and have become the mainstay for treatment of so-called estrogen receptor positive cancers. Another approach is the use of aromatase inhibitors, drugs that block the activity of aromatase, and that's an enzyme that the ovaries use to produce estrogen. Okay, now with that being said, we can tackle the soy issue. In the 1930s, Japanese chemists isolated isoflavones, compounds found in soybeans, that a decade later were shown by British chemist Edward Charles Dodds to mimic the effects of estrogen by binding to estrogen receptors. 
This introduced the concept of phytoestrogens, plant-derived compounds with estrogenic activity, and it raised the obvious question of whether soy products could feed breast tumors. Now, after literally thousands of published studies about soy and isoflavones, we have an answer. Although isoflavones do enhance the proliferation of breast cancer cells in vitro, that is in the lab, and can promote estrogen-dependent tumors in rats that have had their ovaries removed, numerous human epidemiological studies have shown that there is no need to be concerned about isoflavones aiding and abetting breast cancer. Indeed, it is likely they do the opposite. The initial soy studies were triggered by the observation that the incidence of breast cancer is substantially higher in North America than in Asia, and that descendants of Asian immigrants to North America are no longer protected. These studies found a dramatic difference in the amount of soy consumption. That, of course, is by itself not proof. But then there are case control studies that compare lifelong diets of breast cancer patients with controls and conclude that soy consumption, if anything, has a protective effect. The protection seems to be the greatest with significant soy consumption around the age of puberty. And then there are also a number of prospective studies, that is forward-looking studies, that have examined soy intake by patients after being diagnosed with breast cancer and what they found was reduced mortality and reduced recurrence with more soybean being eaten. So how then is it that isoflavones, compounds that definitely do bind to estrogen receptors, are not implicated in causing mischief? That answer appears to lie in the relative strength with which the two substances bind. Isoflavones bind weakly and are unable to activate the receptors. But by occupying the binding sites, they prevent the receptors from engaging with estradiol, which would stimulate excessive cell growth. That's the theory anyway. But aside from the theory, we know, as I said, from now really substantial amount of epidemiological evidence, 20,000 studies or so. Well, I've not read all 20,000, but I've certainly read enough of them to be convinced that there's no need to worry about intake of soy, uh, certainly not as far as the isoflavone content goes. And uh, you should also understand that phytoestrogens have other beneficial properties. They also act as antioxidants. And furthermore, of course, they're not limited only to soy. They're found in virtually every fruit or vegetable that, uh, that you consume. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I would not be in favor of isoflavone supplements. We just don't have enough knowledge about what they do or do not do. But I have no reservations about eating edamame or tofu or having some miso soup. And that is it for today. We have run out of time. But we will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then... I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>